0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW proof. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children in special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the Special Needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show. We are so excited this evening to be bringing you this episode. We have just got some fantastic Uh guests, and we um, have just got a wonderful show lined up for you. Uh, This is Diane Kennedy. I'm the host, along with my co-author and co-host, Rebecca um, Banks. Are you there, Rebecca? I
2: am. I am. I am so excited about tonight's show as well. I just can't wait to get to our guests.
0: We are. And before we get to it, let me give just a short overview uh, for those listeners who haven't been following us. You may want to catch up with some of our earlier podcasts this month. We've been covering the DSM, the upcoming changes to DSM-5, autism, Asperger, ADHD, and today, um, we're going to talk about how no doubt those changes that everyone has got everyone swirling about the DSM-5 uh, are going to affect our twice-exceptional children, especially those with Asperger disorder. And today, uh, we're joined by Dr. Lorna Wing and Judith Gould, Dr. Judith Gould as well. They are the renowned experts and pioneers of the autism spectrum. Uh, their work is just known throughout the land. Whenever anyone thinks of autism and how we have come to understand this as a spectrum, we know that we respect this work and, and we know uh, the feeling is mutual globally. We are so honored to have them here today. Dr. Wing is retired, but she does still continue to act as a consultant to the National Autistic Society in, um, in Great Britain and um Dr. Gould is the director of the National Autistic Society, Lorna Wing Center for Autism. She is um, a chartered consultant um, clinical psychologist with also nearly 40 years' experience. Together, their work has just absolutely uh, changed the field of autism, and uh, we're so excited this evening to be bringing them on. Welcome, Um, and we have been informed that um, we're going to call them Lorna and, and Judith for the episode tonight but um they are both um just wonderful researchers and professionals welcome to the show
3: Thank you very much for your very kind introduction we are we are feel very flattered by uh, your esteem I yes, uh, I agree
0: So let's start with, with one of some of your questions Okay wonderful we um We've got uh, several things we want to cover here today, but something we'd like to talk about as we get started is your early work with Seminole in establishing the autism spectrum. In fact, you helped identify uh, what is recognized today as Asperger um, syndrome or Asperger disorder. And interestingly, the individuals with this disorder also compromise a significant portion of the population that we refer to as twice exceptional. Those are the, the individuals with high IQs as well as um a a disorder such as autism, Asperger syndrome, ADHD. Can you give us a little background um just briefly on how it came about uh, after your work in autism to to f- define autism as a spectrum?
1: Um, well I think uh, it it started with um my paper that I wrote in 1981 describing um Um, the syndrome that uh, Asperger had written about, Um, and um, his writing had a number of consequences, which include, for example, the growth of interest and information and fascination with the syndrome in the general public, as well as professionals in the field. It also led to changes in definitions and estimates of the prevalence of autism spectrum disorders resulting in much debate on these issues. Consequences of identifying and having Asperger's syndrome as an entity have been both positive and negative. always the case with an even one does. On the positive side, um, you can point out that uh, many people with the syndrome and their families have been helped because of the understanding of the nature of their problems and appreciation of their special skills. The development of all kinds of specialized services for more able people in the autism spectrum has also been of benefit to those receiving them. But on the negative side are the arguments relating to autism. People have inferred that uh, I, Lorna Win, identified a separate condition from autism. In fact, I've always considered Asperger's syndrome to be part of the autism spectrum especially since there were far more people with mixed of and than pure cases. And this way, my paper has started controversy where none should
3: I think I must endorse that. Uh, Amy, we've always felt that Asperger's syndrome is part of the spectrum, mm-hmm. and people spend so much time arguing you know, between high-functioning autism and Asperger's syndrome, that in, in, in the end, the, the difficulties are very similar. But but Lorna, what about the idea of what is autism? The question is, what is autism?
1: Yes, well, we um, pointed out that there were three main areas of difficulty, and these were difficulties in social interaction, social communication involving language, what we call social imagination, that's the ability to um, think about what's going on in other people's minds. Those three areas were particularly affected autism spectrum because people with autism find it very hard to recognize and understand other people's feelings and how to manage their own not understanding how to interact with other people can make it very hard to form friendships people with autism struggle with the social aspect of communication both verbally and non-verbally and people with autism find it difficult to understand and predict other people's intentions and behavior and to imagine situations outside of their own personal experience.
0: And if I may interrupt just for one second to to ask the second part of that question, um, ladies, and that is, how how does that make it more difficult to diagnose, especially when we're dealing with sometimes superior IQs very, in the very high ranges where um, an individual may look as though they understand or they're competent socially because their IQ is masking that. Can you tell us how that makes diagnosis difficult? It certainly
1: does make it difficult. <laughs> because, Just um, as you've said, they, they mask yeah. their problems. Yes, mm. because... Um, a person with um, Asperger's syndrome um, can be absolutely brilliant in some areas um, of function. Um, they can have amazing memory for the details of the things that they're interested in. But um, on the other side of the picture, um, they can be completely um, unaware of aspects of life which are outside their particular pattern of interest. And uh, it can be more difficult to diagnose children with high IQs who've got um, an autistic disorder because they can learn the social rules which mask it. And as we're suggesting, the way their autism is manifested can be very different and the stereotyped conventional view of what This is why the dimensional approach to diagnosis is more appropriate. But it does make life difficult, there's no doubt.
3: I mean, it really is important to have the idea of the, the core difficulties, particularly the social difficulties, yes. and then ask the right questions, which I know we'll be talking about later. Our diagnostic interview yes. really goes into the detail of the difficulties and the skills individual have, we we take the dimensional approach because we don't like putting people into categories. So, you know, somebody, one person with Asperger Syndrome may be very different from another person with the same condition. You've really got to describe the pattern of, of, of the skills and difficulties in order to recommend needs.
2: Exactly. Rather than just saying that this this child has, you know, four of the symptoms that are required for a diagnosis, that child may have the first four symptoms. One of our earlier guests pointed out um, last week, Dr. Thurber, I believe, and he said but the same child, another child, may present with four different symptoms. They would both qualify for a diagnosis, but the ways that you would treat them and the ways that you would approach them would be vastly different, which is one of the limitations of the DSM approach to diagnosis.
3: Yep. because
2: mm-hmm. you're, Yes. And so as you all were talking, I couldn't help but think um, of our, our young 2E ch- children and parents out there. Um, when you have a child, when we have children with giftedness, oftentimes they tend to be stubborn in their areas of interest anyway. A child um, who has uh, higher IQ and special areas of interest also and they're younger, they tend to throw tantrums um, in transition because they don't want to leave their special areas. Um, Some of this looks like autism as well in young children. What are some of the characteristics that parents of young children with higher IQs perhaps should watch for that may indicate the presence of autism, Uh, and how might that be different from giftedness? Yeah, the, the difficulty is with a
3: very young child, it's difficult to be certain about their level of IQ because of the way we measure IQ, you have, to, you have to be able to sit and you have to be able to concentrate uh, in order to get an assessment completed. But I think that really there are very there are few real differences in young children, whether they're high or low functioning. I think you're right that the behaviors um, reflect the, the temper tantrums, the uh, stubbornness, all things you've described, um it really what you, the essence of what we think is that is the child who doesn't actually draw attention to parents to objects or, or things that are of interest, not just their own interest, but in all sorts of interests. You know, what we refer to as joint referencing. Mm-hmm. And Lorna, I know you've got a little example of Susie, your daughter, yes. what happened with her when she was very little. She
1: never pointed do anything. Um, We had to guess what it was she wanted when she was crying for something because she never showed us in any way what it was that she really was asking for. And um, this made life extremely difficult when she was very small and we we hadn't realised that that she had a a condition of autism. um, The problem is that um, you can't look for um, some pathological um, indicator um, of a physical, pathological condition of a physical, physical kind. Everything um, depends upon the pattern of behaviour. And that makes diagnosis a you know, much more a difficult I th- problem. I, th-
3: I think, though, that the, you know, in typical development between 12 and 18 months, a typically developing child mm. will most certainly point to things, engage you, make eye contact, mm. want to share with mm. you. And if Lorna, if I may give uh, another example uh, that Lorna has told me that when Susie was above that age, she was sitting with her in a train. Uh, opposite another mum with a, a, a child of a similar mm-hmm. age. And this little child was pointing and, and sharing with his, his or her mum. And, and Susie wasn't doing that. And Lorna told me she had a cold shiver mm-hmm. down her spine because she knew then there was something wrong. So, you know, the temper tantrum stubbornness can occur in, in lots of kids. Yes. But I think if they're not showing that early social interaction, mm-hmm. that would be the diagnostic key for us.
1: Yeah.
2: Absolutely.
3: Does well, make and it's,
2: it makes perfect sense. And I'm so grateful, Judith, that you shared that moment of that so many mothers, so many parents have that moment of awareness where that cold, Chill runs through us when we do recognize that there is something different about our children, and or our child, and and it is typically, like you said, between 12 and 18 months. It's that developmental period where we look and we recognize that things aren't progressing the way perhaps that that they they should be. And so, I'd love for parents to to heed their gut warning and just pay attention to those moments because we We need to, as parents, validate our instincts as well and understand that you know there is there are differences and that social difference is so important. I'm so glad that you all pulled that out for us If I may, I want to ask you about some of your um current more current research that's been going on that you've been doing in terms of uh gender and the difference perhaps the key differences in girls and boys. So much of our autism research is centered upon boys. Um, However, your research lately has focused upon girls and, and, and autism. What are some of the key differences that you've discovered in terms of how Asperger's may present differently in girls and I'd also love for you to address some of the diagnostic implications as we move through the interview, because I think this is such an underserved area. I got an email from a friend, a colleague, actually, from the University of Louisville, and she asked me, do you know anything about autism in females? And I'm finding that more and more women our age, middle age, um, are recognizing that perhaps there is something different about themselves as well. And even though they may have raised families and things, that they may indeed be on the spectrum. So I'd love for you to speak to this, if you will.
3: Of course, uh, it, it, as you'll rightly say, it's become my 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 special interest. Mm-hmm. And it, it, historically, what has happened is that we were getting more referrals to the Lorna Wing Centre for diagnosis for adolescent girls and young young adult women. Uh, whereas before, we, we were getting, we were seeing more boys than girls. Occasionally we saw girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but having this, this new influx of referrals, and they were being referred to having mental health problems. So they might have eating disorders or OCD or depression, anxiety. And they'd gone through the system never having been picked up and ended up with mental health problems because of the lack of recognition of their differences. So that's how they came to be referred. And so that sparked my interest in thinking, well, you know, why are they being missed? And it's because we still have a very male stereotype of autism. that you know, Even Leo Kanner, in his first 11 children, there were three out of the 11, there were three girls, he described. And somehow I think the girls have just got lost in the system. So um, what they do, I think, is they certainly mask their problems. So in a sense, they're more social than the boys. They they want friends. They want to be part of the group, whereas I'm generalizing, whereas the boys tend to prefer to do their own things which are more object-related rather than people-oriented. So people don't pick up the girls' problems because they're masked. Uh, they're in mainstream schools. They, they're they passive usually, so they sit and they rarely ask for help. And because they don't cause any problems, they are not picked up until adolescence. And then comes adolescence. Become, when the social um, expectations become far greater than when they're younger, uh, and dare I say it, girls can be very, very difficult and and horrible to each other. Maybe more than <laughs> boys are. You know, boys are straightforward. <laughs> <get> girls. <laughs> uh, and so, come adolescence, that's when the teasing and the bullying starts because our girls don't recognise that the social norms. They, they they may be interested in the in the Barbie dolls or the manga cartoon manga cartoons or celebrities, uh, uh, but what happens is that they don't move on, they still stick to what they've been interested in, and they're marginalized. So in answer to your question about the differences, in in our questioning, in our diagnostic interview, uh, we, we move away from special interests such as cars, trucks, trains, cooling um, towers, whatever, to, um, as I said, uh, animals is a very is a favorite mm-hmm. um, celebrities soaps um, all the more social interests now people will argue uh, okay, all teenage girls like soaps and celebrities, and what's different, and it's always the quality of the difference rather than is there a difference or not, so you do need to be an experienced clinician to get underneath. The special interests that the the girls have, uh, but essentially they are really very very vulnerable because through their passivity. Um, oh, oh, in contrast, you do have, of course, the, the tomboy girls, and I su- I suspect the temple Temple Grandin would would agree yes. <laughs> that you fit into that group. Um, and in fact, <laughs> I suspect the temp- temples of the world. Will picked up earlier. It's the more social Asperger-type girls that are being missed. Does that make sense?
2: It makes perfect sense, and I find it interesting that you speak more to the popular culture because these girls understand that this is what's so important um, with their peers. They can perceive that, but it's the... It's the attachment to whatever particular area of interest it may be and that it eventually becomes almost, if you will, a social immaturity that they're unable to to move beyond. Um, May I ask you about the eating disorders and the OCD because um, those those are a couple of of diagnoses that have certainly been attached to to my daughter and it's it's, um, the OCD presented very early. However, um, I also have noticed social challenges all along with her. And one thing that I find so interesting is that we we tend to perceive the repetitive behavioral aspects in girls um, differently perhaps, or perhaps the repetition manifests itself differently.
3: Yeah, I I, I think so. Um, going back to the eating disorders, the, the ritualistic behaviors with eating and food fads Quality again of the difference in the in the girls with Asperger and those with anorexia or, or whatever um, is that it's almost a, a part of their ritualistic um, wanting to keep things the same, um, being very particular about counting calories, making sure that their weight is uh, uh, so many grams more or less. And again, it's, it's the it's the way they're showing that ritualistic behaviour that's different. It's not its not socially biased in the sense of them wanting to have a, a certain body image. It's more factual mm. about mm. this is the way they want to control their environment. Mm. And that's the mm-hmm. Asperger, rather than the eating disorder bit. Because there are a number of girls and women who have been misdiagnosed as ha- having anorexia. Yes, they have eating problems... But it stems from their social impairment of their Asperger syndrome. So going That's so interesting. Go ahead. That's fascinating. I just, I, I really, I only saw a gentleman yesterday. It wasn't a woman; it was a gentleman, and I was struggling with his rituals were so intense that they were so impacting on his daily living that I just felt, is this OCD or is this Asperger syndrome? But, but, again, it's back to the social aspect of the condition that you're, you're looking for. Um, so however many rituals somebody has or, ha- or eating problems they have, you've really got to get underneath of what the causation is of this pattern of behavior uh, because treatment will be completely different if you've got Asperger's syndrome and OCD as if you had OCD without
2: Asperger's syndrome. So that's well, in that's with regard to OCD, does it always have to be expressed in, in external rituals, or can the thinking patterns themselves uh, be the rituals? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that.
3: Obsessional thoughts certainly are a feature of people we've seen with Asperger syndrome, because they keep going through their, rehearsing through their thoughts, their worries, their anxieties and it becomes a perpetual problem that they can't break the habit. So obsessional thinking is very much part of the picture we've seen in with, with Asperger's syndrome.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much.
0: I appreciate fascinating. No, I'm, I'm just, you know, that's such an important issue. And I know that Becky and I, uh, when we were researching for the book and really trying to hopefully explain that, you said it so well, the thinking is sometimes misguided um, because we don't see it as an outward behavior. I know with my son when he was being tested in high school retested and he originally had an Asperger diagnosis at 4 but of course it looks very different at 17 or 18 and the um the rather uninformed high school um psychologist said why he can't possibly have Asperger anymore which was silly to me that you know he would lose it but her thought was she didn't see any outward repetitive patterns, and so she was really stuck on that. And I said to her, if you could get inside of his mind, you would see it's just a spinning repetition yeah, yeah. of worry and anxiety constantly.
3: And and also the intellectual interests.
0: We, we mm-hmm.
3: classify
0: them as routines
3: uh, and ritualistic behaviors because at very, very high levels of ability, the skill in pursuing uh, an interest
1: Uh, is part of the picture as well. Um, But that has the... You you say that's positive, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. There are definitely positive aspects of um, having uh, Asperger's Syndrome, as well as negative ones. Mm. And uh, one of the um, amusements that we (laughs) um, entertain ourselves with is is, um, thinking about very famous people from history, which of them... (laughs) had Asperger's syndrome, and sure, some of them did. (laughs) So we mustn't mustn't forget the
3: the, the high levels of creativity. Mm -hmm. We were were talking about social imagination. We're not talking about creativity here. Mm -hmm. Some people with Asperger's syndrome are highly
2: creative. Mm
3: So it's it's your use of imagination in a social sense is important. And
2: I'm so excited that you mentioned that as well, because here in America, excuse me, it's, it's more perceived as a lack of imagination. And we're talking about highly imaginative, creative people in, a, yes. in their area of interest who can think yes. in ways that we can't even perceive or conceive yes. of ourselves. And so that I think of with the diagnostic criteria being so uh, described in such broad terms and definitions, it has
3: made diagnosis different, difficult. yeah, I agree. Whenever you have a categorical system, we'll come on to this in a minute, you're going to miss people because people don't fit neatly into boxes.
1: That's right.
0: (laughs) Right, and and speaking of that as we as we get into these questions about the new um, DSM changes, and I know you you have both written um, a couple of papers on this subject, and you've of course been asked your opinion now um, for a while as they move closer to this source of controversy and we want to ask you specifically about the proposed changes and how um, that they will affect people um, in the Asperger community because they 're very concerned about them, and basically we 've we 've kind of distilled it down into three three areas of questions, and that is the first one is of course, um, to collapse everything into an autism spectrum, which has its pluses. I know you know you 've stated that, and we couldn 't agree more that um, saying it is all autism it 's just a spectrum, and second of all. Um, by eliminating the Asperger diagnosis now that we have used that as a measuring stick, where is that going to leave us? And third, by creating a new disorder and spinning off and trying to separate, put barriers up for social communication disorder um, that that will rule out autism. If you can speak um, to those changes and Specifically, as we look at eliminating Asperger disorder, and as we've been talking about the repetitive behavior, um, it's been our thought that that is sort of the glitch. That's the glitch that, as they try to comfort us with, well, it's okay we get rid of Asperger disorder, it's all going to be autism, you'll still be cared for, yet you'll be eliminated because, like in the case of my son I mentioned, if we can't find a place where you have this, very rigid, um, repetitive behavior that looks like what we think it is, you can't possibly have a diagnosis. So tell us, please give us your mm-hmm. thoughts on, on these changes. Mm-hmm. So if, if
3: we start with the first, I mean, Lorna, we, we've, we've always felt that the overall approach uh, of pervasive developmental disorders under an umbrella term, autism spectrum disorder, is mm-hmm. what we have aimed for in all our working time together. Yes, we We
1: have indeed aimed for that, but we haven't aimed for it um, by thinking that we want to get rid of all the subgroups. um, We're perfectly happy with the concept of a spectrum Mm. with subgroups, and those subgroups Mm -hmm. are a question of great importance and great
3: fascination. But, but we do. When we come on to talk about our Service Disorder, we we feel, and Lorna having having coined this term, and 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 in 1994 it was included in DSM-4. I mean, really, we we think it is helpful to have this different description yes. within the autism spectrum. Yes. Yes. So if you came here for a diagnosis, we always say. This person has an autism spectrum disorder, overall umbrella term, but he or she best fits that description of Asperger, because it does matter that that you know somebody with Caner's autism and somebody with Asperger syndrome, people can't see that there's a connection, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. having those terms is helpful for the individual. But we we, but we welcome DSM-5. saying autism spectrum disorder. Yes. But yes.
4: mm-hmm.
3: well, that's really the, the first one. Now, eliminating diagnosis, well, no, absolutely not. We would not want to eliminate
1: specific, specific diagnosis. There's such a huge difference yeah. between yeah. different types of autism within the spectrum. Yeah. Um, it would be crazy to get rid of the, the subgroup. And, and here in the UK, as
3: I know with you in the States, I mean, there's a great number of people who are blogging and twittering and whatever uh, about the loss of their identity, the loss of a label. Does that mean they won't have any services anymore, as you rightly said? And and, and so it really isn't appropriate. Now, what what we've suggested in what we've written is that we retain in DSM-5 a list of subgroup names that have been used... Any of which will place you into the autism spectrum, rather than specific diagnostic criteria being attached. Like, have you got a problem before you're three or not yes, before yes, three yes. or whatever. Uh, so not the cut-offs, but descriptions. Uh, so that will be the you know, give a brief description of what we we all think is Asperger's disorder. So we really feel strongly that a description should be retained and not just an elimination of everything that we've worked for, all of us have worked for for many years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes
2: perfect sense. In fact, I think um, people have held too tightly to the subtypes and and lost the concept of what autism is in terms of... um, and, and I don't think that at any point. I believe in an earlier conversation that we had with you, Lorna. You expressed that, in some ways, you're sorry that you had named it, and it had yeah. become some kind of concrete entity in the DSM, rather than yeah. being seen as part of the spectrum. Yeah. 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 Well, there we are. That's how things
3: happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think it, it is. It's important that we, you know, we, we really strongly say uh, re- resist. Changing, if you just the autism spectrum, uh, without understanding yes. that people vary and people yes. are yes. different, yes. and and they, they want to want to be
1: considered different, yes. and that that's good. And um, so that's mm. all, yeah. This this is about creating a new disorder, a social behaviour yes. disorder, um, that's not within the autism spectrum. Um, I just don't understand. Yeah,
4: I, I
1: think. Yeah, we, we you can imagine what we
3: feel about this. Um, we don't agree with uh, the creation of a new subgroup um, because in all our years, like you, Lorna you will say this too I know, in all our clinical years and, um working with children and adults who grow up children grow up to be adults we, we don't know who these kids are because they all have a social and communication difficulty mm-hmm. so therefore they're Support and management is not that different from somebody in the autism spectrum, and to try and pull out, as you've mm. said, the repetitive mm. behaviours. And if you've got, if you haven't got repetitive behaviours, they're now going to be a new category called social and communication yes. disorder. Yes. Is a nonsense. Yes. Yes. And
1: behaviours <laughs> can be, repetitive um, be yes. hidden. Like yes. they could just, be manifested yes. in so many different ways. Yes. Many, some of which are not uh, sort of easily recognisable, yeah, yeah. and yet are <laughs> repetitive. That's and, right. And I mean, we've had this. Uh, Lorna
3: has had discussions with Isabel Rappin and when Doris Allen, when they were both around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this sem- was called semantic pragmatic disorder. Then, then it turned into social. What was it? Social language impairment. Yeah. And now we've got a new term called social communication disorder. Mm. Uh, we, you know, we argue this with our certainly with our speech and language therapist colleagues and our psychology colleagues yes. who feel that this is different, but what they haven't done is followed up these children right. into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And you know, what, when, how do they? You know, how, how have they coped throughout their lives yes. with a social and communication disorder that's mm-hmm. different from mm-hmm. an autism mm-hmm. disorder? Mm-hmm. And they haven't... Well,
1: No, I
2: don't think they ask the right questions. Mm. No, they don't. And then the next question that comes to my mind is the issue of diagnostic substitution and what this is going to do for people who get a comorbid ADHD and social communication disorder, children in particular, they may present with that comorbidity, but if you do follow them into adulthood, the way that their lives play out, and Lorna, I love the way that you describe their lives as a hellish nightmare because of their inability <laughs> to to perceive others' motives and to plan and execute and follow through on on goals, all the different executive order disorders that that come along with an autism spectrum uh condition <clears throat> until you see that played out into adulthood. I just I can't help but think that we're looking at a, a different type of diagnostic of substitution here yeah,
3: that that can yeah. occur
2: now, yeah. and we're going to lose well, a lot of our kids and services this way.
3: Yeah. I, I we well we totally agree with you, and I and why create another subgroup another yeah, description yeah, yeah. when they're desperately trying to get rid of subgroups. Here we are creating a new diagnostic category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes. based, I'm not sure what based on what research I know yes. you know, I've I've got it in front of me, uh, the D S M five definitions of what it is, uh, with a lot of papers that have been well no, actually there are four papers that they've quoted in D S M five you know, justifying this separate group and of course Dorothy Bishop is, is uh, um, I don't even know whether Dorothy Bishop is that that Adamant that these kids are that different from the wider autism spectrum.
1: Mm-hmm. You must ask her at some point. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. So, um, it, I think it's a great, I think this is a greatest cause of concern rather than the autism spectrum, uh, the DSM-5. Uh, it,
2: it's and going to be a
3: problem. And mm-hmm.
2: that, interestingly enough, is an issue that hasn't garnered much attention in the American press. Is, is the mm-hmm. creation of this social communication disorder. And um, I just want to shout that from the rooftops. People, Right. <laughs> you know, we, we're we looking at splitting the essential uh, core features of autism and, yes. and calling yes. it a new disorder and still trying to diagnose autism, which is already a very slippery diagnosis, yes. especially mm-hmm. when you look at the tools that we have right now in America, the ADI, are and the, the ADOs and and we're missing so many of the high functioning kids. I just want to. I just want. I just see this as just a terrible trap for our especially high functioning individuals. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, I don't mean to get on my soapbox. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, they have gone to the severity rating in the DSM oh, five God. proposal.
3: Is, oh. Is that not? This, this is even worse. <laughs> um, being, po- being being positive about the autism spectrum umbrella for DSM-5. I do not know what they're doing with these severity ratings. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, suggesting that there are three levels, and, and the definitions are, you know, sub- very substantial support, substantial support, and requiring support. <laughs> How on earth can you define what a person needs and the fact that the assumption that if you're needing substantial support for your social and communication domain, that would mean that you're going to have substantial support for your repetitive domain. And that it doesn't work with a dimensional approach because you can have anything with anything. Yes. And so trying to neatly put boxes of what support someone's mm-hmm. going to need in the way it's been defined. Just leaves me aghast, quite mm-hmm. honestly.
2: So, this isn't what you all mean when you discuss dimensional approach.
3: Not at all. Can, yeah. can you contrast
2: not for our readers or our listeners <laughs> what you mean oh. then? Yeah. No. Now, now what, what, what we we,
3: as you know, we take the dimensional approach. So we're looking at areas of skill mm-hmm. and problems not only within the autism, the triad, as we call it. Uh, but in self care skills in um, independence mm-hmm. in um, vis spatial skills you know, somebody can have a very patchy profile right across all these different domains and it is important in terms of what somebody needs to support is that if you've got you have a very very bright person with Aspergers syndrome with extremely high levels of ability. Who may not be able to tie their shoelaces, mm-hmm. or may not be able to dress independently without parents, you know, putting their clothes in the right order. You, you, severity in terms of support is a whole area of different dimensions. Yes. It can't be put into three boxes on levels of severity. It doesn't even begin to describe what that means. Now I'm on my hobby horse. <laughs> 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 then, well, in, uh, oh, oh, and the other if, thing is, of course, you've said it: that people change over time. So your son, at age five with Asperger's, what his needs at at, at seventeen, in terms of of support and
0: severity, are completely different. Right, <laughs> and and his. I believe his ability to adapt to his environment by using I mean he has a very high superior IQ just in the highly gifted range and over time he's used that it doesn't always help him be able to process his social behavior but it
2: definitely
0: he uses it to try to adapt and so then he just becomes more hidden to his problems they're not seen yeah. Yeah. they go deeper Yes, yeah. he he may not then uh, qualify
3: for support under this new system, and, and here in the UK, the National Autistic Society has put out all these comments on on the on the website, the GSM5 the website, uh, because this is the very thing we're concerned about. Is in the UK at the moment, um, services are very hard to get anyway because of our economic climate. So to actually put in these restrictions of severity mm. levels of severity. Means a lot of our bright kids and adults are not going to access services, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: right? And so, if we're going to have a system that eliminates services in terms of our children's um, being able to access them through the medical community, and even over here in America, the educational community certainly um, is is not. Is ill-equipped to provide services that our children and our students with Asperger's and high-functioning autism need. Um, how can parents uh, kind of come in and, and kind of shore up areas? What would your recommendations for parents who who are facing a, a cut or loss of services? Do you all have any suggestions for them or?
3: Well, here in the UK, the National Autistic Society is a really advocate for parents and the people themselves. Mm-hmm. So we're a campaigning organisation, so there's a lot of effort being put in at government level uh, to, 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 to try and address these points. So
1: I guess I haven't... Have you got any other thoughts, Lorna, on that? No, I don't really know how this would um, work in America. Um, is it possible that um, um, a group of parents could influence
2: government um, uh, activity in the way that can here. And I suppose one thing that concerns me is awareness, because because Asperger's was included in dsm four and because people have, through the years, become more aware of Asperger's and high-functioning autism. Parents became more aware, and again, going back to creating a new disorder, social communication disorder, and attaching it to other disorders, parents may not recognize that they're dealing with autism.
1: Yeah, yes, Mm. yes, that's Mm. a big problem. Mm. 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 Here, I think in England they do recognize
3: it. Yeah, in the UK rather than. So maybe we're we're better off in that uh, in that way than you are. Mm. Um, I haven't really. The, the other thing I meant to mention, with, of interest with the new DSM-5, is the inclusion of sensory uh, difficulties.
2: Yes, in, thank
3: you. It's that that criterion on on you know where you've got to have two out of four in the repetitive mm-hmm. things, and they've now put hypo, and hypo sensitivity. And, and again, that, this is something, as you you know, that in our diagnostic interview, we've got lots and lots of questions on all aspects of sensory problems. And, you know, in studies we've done, we've found in a, in a database here of 200 individuals that 95% of them had at least one sensory problem. Mm. And having a sensory difficulty really impacts. On the way you, you cope in the world, because uh, there are so, so many things that will influence and distract you and make life uncomfortable for yes, you. Yes. And you know this hasn't been addressed before. Uh, and so we're, I'm particularly pleased that it's included uh, in the new criteria mm-hmm. because it does after, you
4: know,
3: how you help somebody again. Back to my helping people yes. is, is being aware that they have these problems.
4: Mm-hmm
0: absolutely and you know as you mentioned your your tool and we really wanted to talk about that because it's just so under um under appreciated here i think and and as we've discussed that for years with you we'd love to to help advocate to to bring that training here to the to the US But before we really dig deep into that, because I'd love for you to explain to some of our professionals listening what that tool is, we have mentioned it, and we'll get a puzzled look, but they're excited when they hear what it does. But first, we wanted to ask you specifically, um, you know, we've done a lot of study on the tools, the the basic gold standards that are used, the ADOS and the ADI, and uh, the ADIR, actually, which are two of the tools that were used when my son was diagnosed. And um, there's been reports in some of the studies we looked at when we covered this for the book that um, these tools don't capture the, the higher-functioning um, individuals. Again, they it's more restricted. And so um, with these new criterias being that we talked about specifically being restrictive too, are those tools even more going to just not work with the new adaptation mm-hmm. since they're, they don't work to help this high-functioning group now? Can you explain how they may not work and what the solution to that may be?
3: Well, I suspect that Kathy Lord will be looking at this yes. uh, and will be adapting the ADI rna Account for DSM-5. I'm sure she will be, as we are doing with our DISCO. Um, I think I, I talk more about the ADOs, um, and I think people recognise that the ADOs does miss that, the really high-functioning group. Yes, yes. Um, we would use ADOs in conjunction with the disco, our diagnostic interview for for some of the children, but we've always felt that. Uh, Putting a child in a structured setting with an experienced clinician is going to get the best out of the child. So our high-functioning kids that we're talking about, well past the ADOS and and they're not picked up Mm -hmm. because they have strategies, as you've described, how they've learned. Um, they, They can show imaginative creativity. They don't show any repetitive behaviors in that structured setting. But seeing that same child out in the schoolyard or the playground, interacting with their peers, you get a very different Mm -hmm. picture.
4: Mm -hmm. So
3: reliance on any of these diagnostics, including the disco, we should not rely on Mm -hmm. one thing. And Lorna, I'm going to remind Lorna about her view on gold standard. Gold standard (laughs) is the experienced clinician. There are no Tools mm-hmm. that are gold standard. That's what you've that's always that's said. Really great, you? yeah. Yeah. It's the it's it's the experienced person interpreting, as, as long said, as the behaviors mm-hmm. that that diagnoses.
0: Not yes. what tool you use. Yes. 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 That is a beautiful way to put it, and that and that is what um, I guess that we're describing too. That I'm sure you do. You have an extensive training. I know for uh, when you train other clinicians in using your tool. Can you describe that a little bit about uh, what, what goes into that? You are making them educated, not just on the tool, but in the information that's used for the tool. Is that correct? Absolutely right. So it, it, it is an intensive training
3: program, and we, we thoroughly in, um, explore the whole concept of what autism is. And Lorna's Lorna's got a wonderful talk that we use, uh, where she talks about the history of autism and where we where we were and where we are now. Yes. So during the training we are we are training in the concepts, not on the use of the tool. Uh and sadly I, I am aware that you can buy the ADIR, you can buy the ADOS and you 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 can then train train yourself with videos online without that input from experienced clinicians mm-hmm. and I' some quality assurance I really feel we we put a lot of effort into the disco training and it it is to take time, but we feel more comfortable that the people having gone through the process have a better understanding of the whole spectrum than is this autism is it not? What are the related conditions? Uh, a wider
2: understanding. And now that you bring that up, it sounds like the DISCO, your diagnostic interview, um, is actually cross categorical. Not that you developed it that way, but it sounds like you do cut across categories to, 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 if you will, isolate what is autism and what are other types of of disorders or conditions impacting the behaviour and in the individual's functioning.
3: We we certainly do. Mm-hmm. It's uh so the well Lorna you can talk a little bit about how when we started using it
1: and how we used it. Um yes it, it was a bit of a history attached to this. We had um a schedule which was called the H B S the um what is that? Handicapped yeah, skills schedule back, right, that's what for, our, for our for our Research, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, and um, that gradually evolved into what is now known as the DISCO, and the, um, the Diagnostic Interview for Social Communication Disorders. Yes, and um, uh, we, we learned a lot ourselves as we um, gradually evolved this instrument. Um, we, would, it, we kept adding things. That we discovered when we saw individual children and adults, so um we allowed it to um, evolve um, from personal from our own personal experience and the experience of other professionals in the field, so we've got i'm afraid a very lengthy thing to do now that's one of the problems of the disco that it takes time to complete and um, you have to uh, ask the questions um, and then elaborate on them. You can't just ask the questions as they stand in 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 the actual thing itself. You have to go around each question and discover whether the person understands what you're trying to get at. So it takes a very long time. But we feel that it's worth it. Because you get out a huge amount of information about how this um, person you're asking about how they function in everyday life. In all sorts of areas, not just one or two areas, but covering a wide range of types of behavior. And um you feel that this is um, very useful from the point of view of trying to figure out whether they fit into an autistic spectrum or some other yeah.
3: category, whether they yeah. perfectly so, okay. So, so that's the process that we do the system of extracting algorithms for DSM, and of course, in, in here we use ICD as well. Uh, so, so professionals who come on the training who feel maybe feel a bit insecure in their clinical experience. Can use the, the algorithms for DSM, mm-hmm. which gives them that little that feel of uh, security, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But as mm-hmm. time goes by, they then, as they become more experienced, mm-hmm. they then will make their own judgment and not depend so heavily on these wretched cutoffs. Yes.
4: yes. So mm-hmm.
3: even in DSM five, you've got descriptions that are not. Op, um, can't be operationally defined mm-hmm. it, uh, an interpretation uh, of a particular pattern can be very different from two, with two clinicians mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but with the DISCO what we've done is we've looked at the, the, the um, criteria in DSM 4 and alpha 5 and we've said right w- you know, what does this mean this social, lack of social reciprocity so within the DISCO, we've got a set of questions that relate to that description, mm-hmm. and then we can then make counts. So in a way, um, that system is, is is cut off. It's not cut off, but it's actually trying to define what all these behaviours mean operationally.
0: Yes. The DSM um, hasn't done that. It's still leaving
3: you waking your judgement. Mm-hmm.
0: And am um, I correct in asking another feature of the DISCO that appears to be just really what needs to be done, and that is by including looking for strengths as well as just yes. the deficits. That's that's Absolutely. not used in these other tools. Am I right?
3: Absolutely. We don't say what ca- what is it that your child cannot do. What is it that your child can do? Yes. So we're not looking for autism, we're looking at the person. Yes, yes, yes. And And parents parents must prefer that because they actually want to tell you what the child can do, not not
0: the problems they're having. This is exactly what led us to the work we did with our book and understanding that, people such as Temple Grandin or our children, that we knew these, by not looking at their strengths, you really aren't addressing the entire individual. Absolutely, yes, yes. Yes. Yes.
3: And the Disco definitely does that. And
0: And this makes it a a rare tool because it's just... Go ahead. The,
2: the The time element, I'd like to speak to that for a minute because as a teacher and an educator... We spend years developing our craft in teaching. We spend, as a writer, I've spent years developing my craft in writing. How can we expect clinicians to come out of graduate school and medical school programs with checklists in hand and be equipped in the craft and the art of identifying individual strengths and weaknesses in a you know and then a 30 minute to an hour session. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that what we have here is a conflict between the clinicians' true needs and the, our individual parents and children's true needs and this mm-hmm. overwhelming burden system that we, we've locked ourselves into somehow or that we're locked into. And that's mm-hmm. part of
0: our, our
2: uh, if you will, our rallying cry is to increase awareness, at, at you know, the the clinical as well, and especially the parental grassroots level, that folks, this this isn't the best way to help our children become the individuals they were created to be, by checklists of weaknesses, and not not learning to support their strengths and encourage them in that, and not taking the time to recognize what they can do well.
1: Yeah. Mm. We found that some clinicians. Um, accept the um, the disco um, and use it very properly, whereas others haven't the faintest idea. Mm-hmm. And there's very little we can do about it because it's a question of their personalities, yeah. really, mm-hmm. underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no doubt that that some some clinicians can do it. Yeah, we've mm-hmm. got some very good helpers but that. Uh, yeah.
3: One thing i mean
1: what you've hit on is the it's the
3: real dilemma uh that i and Lorna we're both struggling with here in the u k we've been driven to- to you're you're going to hate me for saying this we've been driven to have an an abbreviated disco a shortened version of the disco which mm. essentially at the autism, rather than the whole person, yeah,
4: yeah. because yeah, clinicians
3: yeah. in this country will not spend the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. As long as there are a few who, mm-hmm. is, you know, who see the light, yeah, but yeah. but overall they have clinics of thirty minutes if you're lucky, yeah. and yeah. they need they want something that discriminates autism versus not autism, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. are being driven mm-hmm. down that track. Uh, are much too our upset, grievance, whatever. I think I'm really, I think I'm maybe quite glad that I'm nearing the end of <laughs> my, my life. <laughs> because I don't well, like the way things are going, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I well, want to go back in time with Lorna 20 years ago when yes. we started here, when when really things were, were much brighter then than they are now, actually. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. yes.
2: Yes, and when you talk about personality and that the disco, your full interview schedule, teases out the personality, that's one of the cries that individuals with Asperger's have raised about the proposed changes in DSM-5 is they're taking away our identity. It's not necessarily their identity with autism, but it's an explanation for their personality as well, and that is something that I think in the autism community needs to be very, very much, uh, just embraced and celebrated.
0: Yeah, mm. 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 definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and something, if I can mention, um, Becky, what they're describing is uh, yeah. such a problem here. We hear it from parents all the time, and rushed clinicians who just. Are overloaded as well, and that is the especially when it comes to the ADHD diagnosis. That's the biggest complaint: is a ten-minute office visit and perhaps, Mm -hmm. you know, um, a prescription for medication. That you know, all of the of the impairments that we're looking to treat aren't they haven't had time to even be deciphered, and then the next thing we know, we're in just a cyclone of. of misunderstandings and and the parents are frustrated and um, it's that you know hurry up and everybody is saying there's no way you can define an entire issue in a ten minute office visit. Yeah, no. yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah.
3: Uh, I I I I fear it's getting worse rather than better. Yes. In the sense of of the whole world is in a rush. Nobody takes time to think and. Speculate about why. How? Why
0: are people behaving like this? There's a reason, and we want to get to the bottom of it to help that person.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. right, and it, it's one of our goals. And it, and we, I just feel so impassioned as I'm listening, and I know that Becky does as well. Our goal is the the movement, the other community that that caters to understanding those um, who think differently, the twice exceptional children, the the gifted community. They are looking at the strengths first, but also recognizing the challenges. And, and we feel, and maybe we're just too Pollyanna about our feelings, but we feel if we can bring these two communities together, um, because the disability community really could use some help in getting a different perspective. And if we can bring together the perspective of looking at this child as a whole child, looking at the strengths, and and maybe by even just putting down side by side the strengths with the challenges, sometimes we see that what we perceived was a disability might actually be viewed in another clinical way as uh, as a strength, um, as we talked about with creativity or with a high IQ. Yeah, Mm. absolutely agree, yes. Well, this is what we've got to
3: aim to do. We have to have new energy. (laughs) (laughs) Be prepared to fight on.
0: (laughs) Right, and I know... Temple is is there with us and that's one of her reasons for getting involved with Bright Not Broken and all the things that we've done with her and I know that she was, um, in your lovely neck of the woods here just a few she weeks was. ago.
3: She was. She in fact she had we the the National History Society organized an evening with Temple in oh. Reading. In Berkshire, and it's been videoed. Um, uh, so I've, I've got it on my. Uh, I haven't written, haven't heard it yet. I'll try and I'll send it to you if I can forward it. I don't know if I can, oh. but I'll forward it to you because, well, for me, Temple is the the best. <laughs> yeah, uh, wonderful. And so for she says what she thinks, yes. and uh, and and she makes so much sense. She's, she's, oh, she's, yeah. she's the model for certainly for women, uh, you know, to to achieve and, and show what you can do. And Thank she you
2: know. taught to-
0: and she told us when we started this project and she was so passionate about it that she said we've got to get these communities to share information and we we feel from the autism community there just simply is nobody who has the information and the understanding in the way that that you and Lorna do Judy this is just um it's just so so important to To get this out in the true understanding of autism, and if we can couple it with this whole child thinking and looking at strengths, maybe we we really can cross the ocean and make a difference here. Oh yeah!
2: Wouldn't be nice. Yes. Well, ladies, I want to thank you so much for taking your your valuable time to share with us and yes. our listeners. Uh, just. Your, your DISCO, your views on DSM-5, and the, the especially the information on the girls. I think this is just such an exciting area of research and, and much needed. And I just want to thank you for all of your work and dedication to, to our children and our futures.
3: Well, thank you very much, and also we we very much value our collaboration with you. You are inspiring, the pair of you, and uh, you keep us going. <laughs> well,
0: thank you're bringing you. me, you're bringing me to tears, and we. We're so thankful for your mentorship and your um just your leadership in in helping us as as we first came to you so many years ago as just a couple of scared parents wanting some answers and looking at this work and mm-hmm. We um, we want to thank, too, before we end our program tonight, and you didn't get a chance to meet her on our call earlier, but Marianne Russo, who gives us this platform through the Coffee Clatch, she herself has daughters, and I know she's just going to be so excited about hearing um, some of the topics we have on this call. But also, she's dedicated to speaking out against the DSM five, she's had Alan Francis on a couple of times, and you know he's been very vocal about um, speaking out against the, the, these changes. Good.
1: Mm-hmm. one one thing I'd like to add, and that is um, my reasons for being involved in uh, in the field and feeling that I've got some understanding of autism is that I had an autistic daughter of my own, yes. and that made
3: all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. No, nothing would have been without Lorna having had Susie because that's, that gave the real insight
1: and understanding of what autism is. Yeah. I wouldn't have understood it unless if I hadn't had Susie. Yeah.
0: Mm. I'm so glad you shared that, Lorna. Thank because you. you're right. You're you're not just your brilliance as a researcher and as a clinician, but your heart as a mother. It's always been mm-hmm. what has come through, and we are grateful for that. Thank First you. Year. Ladies, we thank you so much. We will look forward to um, just um, our our dream roundtable of a discussion with some of these uh, government um, yes. issues that are going on. Someday we are going to cross the ocean, and we are going to keep persevering until we get the attention to really make a difference and bring these topics together.
3: Good. Well, we look forward to that. Absolutely. And thank you for inviting us to talk with
0: you. Thank oh, you for coming Marcia. on. Thank you so much. You all have a wonderful, wonderful day. And we thank you for being on the Bright Not Broken radio show.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.